So we are, uh, we are two weeks into a new series called Perfect. Really, though, we just called it Perfect because we didn't want to say too loudly, no perfect. Uh, and really, that is, that is what this series is about. Last week, we started about uh, no perfect families. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about the topic of no perfect marriages. And um, I recognize that in a room like this, people come from different stages in life, but there are truths and principles here for every single stage and walk of life. And so we have a guest speaker this morning. His name is Barrett McRae. He's a professor at Wheaton College. He's a therapist. He's a husband. He's a dad. And he's a part of the Parkview family. So will you help me welcome uh, Barrett McRae? Okay, I'm on. Good. Well, good morning. <laughs> it's good to be here with you. Uh, it's been an honor for me each time that I've been asked to teach at Parkview. Uh, although I have to admit I wasn't quite sure how to take it this time. Uh, a few months back, I bumped into Pastor Kim at a grocery store. And we were chatting and she said, oh, we have this series coming up on No Perfect. And she said... And when I thought of no perfect marriages, I immediately thought of you. <laughs> That's what I thought. So I'll take it that she meant something good by that. <clears throat> uh, I do have a little disclaimer and, and perhaps even apology that I'd like to start off with this morning. That when a person speaks about any topic, it's easy to make assumptions about the audience that you're speaking to. And with this particular topic of marriage, it would be very easy to make the assumption that everybody in here is married. But that's, of course, not true. Or to assume that everybody wants to be married. And that's not true either. Or to assume that everybody should want to be married. And that's not true either. But I think and I'm afraid that too often in the church, we send a message somewhat similar to that. And we make assumptions like that. As I was growing up in the churches that I was part of in the South, it seemed to be a consistent communication from the church that the right path of life was the path to marriage and family. And the unintended message, or at least I hope it was unintended, was that there was something wrong with me if that's not my path, if that's not what I wanted to do. When I went to college my freshman year at a small Christian school in the South, I can still remember the first day, the first assembly in the chapel of the school. The president of the college stood up and he told all of us in the audience, he said, look around. So we all stopped and we kind of looked around and he said, the person that you'll most likely marry is right here. The perfect match for you. And that's how God wants it to be. That's an enormous amount of pressure to put on a bunch of college freshmen. And it's a cultural pressure that I think is there and is a part of this video I'd like you to watch for a moment. My name is Rebecca Esther Sarah Bathsheba. And I'm John. And I found God's match for me on ChristianTingle.com. I joined Christian Tingle after going on over 50 dates on other online dating sites. I forgive you. Thanks. I never went on a second date um, after I mentioned that I was saving hand-holding for marriage. So I joined the website, and as soon as I saw your picture, I thought, man, she is hot. Babe. What? You are. When I saw her Facebook profile picture, I was like, I've always wanted a woman that's had the most 
devoted devotional ever devoted. Honestly, I wasn't very attracted to him at first. I mean, I thought he was hot, but I was afraid that he was going to be too into himself. If it wasn't for the father, the son, and the Christian tingle, I wouldn't have met the love of my life. If you're looking for someone to date other than Jesus, look no further than ChristianTingle.com. <laughs> so maybe there are perfect marriages. I don't know. <clears throat> but you know, marriage is not the only way to live life. And it's not the right way. It's just the way for some of us. And it's not the way for some of us. And sadly, I think we have a cultural pressure and even more strongly within the church that we send that message that can make those of us whose story is not about marriage feel uh, unwelcome or unspoken to. And so if marriage is not your pathway this morning, then you can just go on and take a nap. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Exactly the opposite. My hope is that what we talk about this morning will have value and will have meaning and will have implications for all of our relationships. Uh, and if nothing else, that we have some compassion and understanding for those of us who do choose marriage as a pathway of life, because as we're going to see, it's not an easy pathway of life. So the theme of our series, as Dave said, uh, is about imperfection, basically that we are all imperfect and that therefore all of our relationships are imperfect. Last week we talked about families, if you were here, and I want to piggyback on that just a little bit because the imperfections of our families come with us into marriage. So I want for just a moment for you to picture a family. Now this is not a perfect family, uh, but they are a modern family. Oh, sorry, that's bad. When psychologists study families, we tend to think of them as systems. And a system is any group of people that gathers together that has a common identity. This body right here is a system. We have a common identity. Your coworkers at work are a system. Any group of people that comes together and has a common sense of identity is a system. And so families are a system. And so we study them that way. One of the things we understand about family systems is that they have a boundary around them that helps form that identity and helps us know who's in the system and who's not in the system. The boundary is made up of certain characteristics of families. For example, hierarchy. Every family has a hierarchy. Whether we want to admit it or not, whether we see it fully or not, every family has a power structure and a way that authority is lived out practically day to day. Now, maybe that's mom and dad are in charge and they make all the decisions together equally 50-50. Maybe it's more mom's in charge uh, or mom's in charge of certain things. Or maybe it's dad's in charge or dad's in charge of certain things. Or for some families, actually, the kids are in charge, but we won't go into that right now. <laughs> However that works out in the family, those who are in the family... They understand how to navigate issues of power and authority within the family structure. And if we took a minute, and don't worry, we're not going to, and we went around and talked about each one of your families, you could each pretty much diagram the hierarchy of your family, because we all know what that's like to live in that. In the same way, communication <clears throat> is an issue of the family boundary and the identity of a family. Some families communicate very loudly and with lots of words. 
Other families don't say much at all, but they're able to send powerful message with just a particular look. My mother had a look like that. She could stop a charging bull in his tracks. My, my brothers and I called it the evil eye. And I hope my mom's not going to watch this video. But, but anyway, families also have different ways of showing intimacy to each other or different ways of dealing with conflict. We have different rules. Some of those rules are very healthy rules, and some are not so healthy. And the healthy ones help us to feel safer within the context of the family. The unhealthy ones, sometimes unspoken, can make us feel imprisoned and in fear in the family. Rules like, don't talk to dad about his anger, or don't tell anyone else about our drinking. Families have different core values, and they have different traditions that emerge from those values. All of these things and other things form this boundary around family, and it's a boundary of identity, a boundary of membership, and it tells us who's in and who's out, and whether the family functions in a healthy way or functions in an unhealthy way, none of them are perfect. None of our families are perfect. All of our families go through pain. We go through struggle. Some of us are able to hang together through that. Some of us are not. Some of us have come through horrific kinds of tragedies in family. And we all have to figure out how to make our way through and how to navigate through the different things that come to be important values for who we are. One of the amazing things about the body of Christ about the way Christ has called us together is that we are supposed to be there to help each other through this. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, bear each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. None of us is perfect, but together we have what we need to help each other through. So let's turn now to marriage. Uh, what we have in marriage is a member of one system joins together with a member from another system, and they say, let's get together and form a new system, a new family system together. So in essence, what we're saying to each other is, let me take all the messed up stuff of my family, <laughs> and let me come over here and join it together with all the messed up stuff of your family, and then let's make a perfect family. Well, of course, that doesn't work. We bring all the good stuff, but we also bring all the hard stuff. And we have to navigate through, how are we going to blend this together and be a family together? That's basically what we sign up for in marriage. Nobody tells you that when you read the manual. There's not a manual. You don't often get that in premarital counseling. But the reality is we are stepping into something in marriage that requires bringing together two very different ways of life and trying to merge those together into one and into a way that works. And to be very honest, that's no easy task. For example, my wife, and she's not here this morning, she's not ill, so I could say whatever I want to about our marriage. So uh, hopefully she won't watch it either. Um, my, <laughs> Connie, <laughs> one of my friends up here. Um, my wife comes from a very passionate Hungarian immigrant West Coast family. 
I, on the other hand, come from a reserved, my wife would say repressed, uh, <laughs> Scottish immigrant southern family. Now, let me explain what I mean. In my family, the way we communicate is that when one person talks, everybody listens, right? And you make, what? And you, <laughs> you make eye contact with the person who's talking. I mean, we're polite, right? Now, my wife's family, on the other hand, um, they're kind of exactly the opposite of that. When they get together, everybody talks at the same time. And if you want to be heard, what do you do? Talk louder, exactly. So, you may know my wife's family. No. So, for me, trying to figure out how to navigate this new family system that I was stepping into was really hard. Trying to figure out, how do I say anything when nobody else ever shuts up? <laughs> right? And I began to realize, after we were married for just a little while, if I'm ever going to be part of this family, I'm going to have to just jump in there. And it was really hard because I felt like I was going to have to be rude. I was told, don't interrupt. I was raised in a culture where you just don't do that. You wait your turn. My turn never came. And so I can remember the day, just like it was yesterday, we were in the kitchen in her parents' house, and as usual, everybody was talking over everybody. Funny, it didn't seem to bother them. They weren't irritated by it, but I was all stressed out, and I was sort of getting myself ready, and I got my courage up, and I don't even remember what we were talking about, but just all of a sudden, I just jumped in, and everybody got dead silent. <laughs> and they all turned, and they looked at me with this look of kind of, who are you? And then slowly the grins emerged on their faces and they started to laugh and there was this sense of, welcome to the family. <laughs> Some of you know what that's like, right? <laughs> what I had to learn was not just a new way of communicating, a new way of being with family. What I had to learn was that there was nothing wrong with their way of communicating. It worked for them. I had to challenge that sense inside of me that there was something morally wrong with this. You people aren't polite. No, they had a different way of communicating, a vibrancy and expression, a sense that it's okay once you get the gist of what someone's saying to just jump in there. And so I had to learn to be a part of that and challenge some of the notions that I had. You see, I believe every marriage is a cross-cultural experience. Some marriages more so than others. But in every one, we have to try to find a way to blend these two systems that have differences together and then also navigate back into each other's systems through marriage. My family is a very physically affectionate family. And I'm kind of on the far extreme of that. I'm a pretty huggy kind of guy. My friends call me Bear. And I like giving Bear hugs. That's just kind of who I am. My wife's family, not so much. And her mother, bless her heart, whenever she sees me coming, she goes, oh, no. <laughs> He's going to hug me. That's one of those areas of life where I'm just like, you're going to have to do it my way. <laughs> um, the road of managing these sorts of differences in family, it, it can be lighthearted and humorous like these that I'm mentioning. But it can also be very serious. 
and even conflictual. The deep core things about who we are that we value sometimes come in conflict with each other. The dysfunctions that we have, the pain, the woundedness, the things that we don't do well, the things that our sinful life brings out, those come with us too. And we have to navigate through life. And that can be extremely stressful. And it can create challenges for a young married couple very early on in marriage. We live in a time period and in a culture here in America that approaches marriage quite differently than it has been approached in a lot of cultures throughout history. Dr. Stephanie Kuntz is Director of Research and Public Education at the Council on Contemporary Families. She is a professor and an author, and she wrote a book entitled Marriage, a History, From Obedience to Intimacy. And she says that throughout most of human history, marriage served political, economic, and kinship purposes, not personal ones. She unpacks that a little bit. She says, for most of history, it was inconceivable that people would choose their mates on the basis of something as fragile and irrational as love, and then focus all their sexual, intimate, and altruistic desires on the resulting marriage. Through most of the past, individuals hoped to find love or at least tranquil affection in marriage, but nowhere did they have the same recipe for marital happiness that prevails in most contemporary Western countries. In many cultures, love has been seen as a desirable outcome of marriage, but not as a good reason for getting married in the first place. Love and marriage was seen as a bonus, not a necessity. We see this throughout cultures and historically in arranged marriages, there was a sense that love to whatever degree was necessary would come but it was not the reason for. Our culture is very different, and this is how Kuntz describes our culture. She says, today, there is general agreement on what it takes for a couple to live happily ever after. First, they must love each other deeply and choose each other unswayed by outside pressure. From then on, each must make the partner the top priority in life, putting that relationship above any and all competing ties. A husband and wife, we believe, owe their highest obligations and deepest loyalties to each other and the children they raise. Parents and in-laws should not be allowed to interfere in their marriage. Married couples should be best friends, sharing their most intimate feelings and secrets. They should express affection openly, but also talk candidly about problems. And of course, they should be sexually faithful to each other. When you listen to it, that's an enormous pressure to put on any one relationship. We go into marriage with extremely high expectations and hopes that this one relationship will serve most of all of our needs. And tragically, many buckle under the pressure. Just navigating the challenges that we mentioned initially of blending two family systems together, that's hard enough. But when you lay on top of it the kind of pressure that Kuntz is talking about, to be everything for each other, to be a perfect relationship, it's just too much. In my work as a psychologist, uh, I meet with a lot of couples who are in pain. And we're in pain for so many reasons, and all of us, whether individuals or couples, we know what it's like to go through struggles in life, through our own 
difficult times of emotional overload, through times when the stresses of life bear down and we can hardly bear it. And to try to walk through those with somebody while navigating the responsibilities and the burdens of blending lives together and families together and caring for children if you have children, the toll can just be enormous. And so I meet with couples who are struggling trying to figure out how do we do this and stay close together, stay connected with each other in the midst of it. And I'm struck by how much pressure we can put on each other to be the answer to all of our hopes and dreams, to be the balm for all of the wounds that we feel. It's as though we come to each other expecting that other person is going to make all the pain go away. It's as though we want marriage to be the perfect relationship that corrects all the imperfections of our lives. And it can't be that, and it can't do that. D.W. Winnicott, a psychologist who wrote back in the 1950s and 60s, and wrote about families, he said that the best that any of us can do as parents is be good enough parents. I like that phrase, good enough parents. Perfection's not possible. And I think we can bring that over to marriage as well and talk about what does it mean to be good enough parents. So, what is it that makes all our imperfect relationships good enough? What makes a good enough marriage? I'm going to suggest three things. First is love. Sounds simple. But I don't mean here the love at first sight romantic kind of love. The love that I mean here is the deep love that the scriptures talk about that covers over the imperfections of the other. A deep love that covers over the imperfections of the other. The Apostle Peter wrote in his first letter that followers of Jesus should above all love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. The Apostle John wrote in his first letter, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for each other. Now, neither of these two was written necessarily to marriage. They are the teaching of the apostles of Jesus about how all of us within the family of God are supposed to treat each other. How much more should that be true of the covenant of marriage? The apostle Paul, writing specifically to married couples in a section of his, of his letter to the church in Ephesus, wrote these words. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. Good enough marriages are ones in which we strive to put the needs of the other before ourselves. Now, none of us are perfect, but good enough means that we keep trying again each day. You see, marriage is a covenant, I think, that has a special promise, a very unique promise, because it's a promise to make again a new promise each day. And here's how I think that promise goes. Each day we are to say in our hearts, I choose you, and I will love you with a deep love that covers over your imperfections today, and I will strive to put your needs above my own. Let me read that again. I choose you, and I will love you with a deep love that covers over your imperfections today, and I will strive to put your needs above my own. That's not an easy promise. 
And it's not one that my wife and I have been married 28 years. It's not enough for me to say, hey, I promised you that. But back then, I'll let you know if it changes. No. It's each day I need to promise again. I want you to meet a couple, Zelmira and Herbert Fisher. They were married on May 13, 1924. And they remained married to each other until Herbert's death, sadly, in 2011. He was 105 years old. So they were married for 87 years. They are, I think, still in the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest marriage. Zelmira sadly followed him in death uh, two years later when she reached 105 herself. But before they died, they were interviewed. And what you see up here is just one of the comments that they made that really struck me. They said, we grew up together and were best friends before we married. A friend is for life. Our marriage has lasted a lifetime. There's no secret to our marriage. We just did what was needed for each other and for our family. Listen to that last part. We just did what was needed for each other and our family. It sounds simple. But it's a profound commitment of self-sacrifice. A prevailing sentiment, I think, in our society seems to be that what makes marriages last, what truly holds us together through all the imperfections of life, is compatibility. And according to eHarmony, 29 dimensions of compatibility. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. I've got nothing against eHarmony or online dating uh, sites. But I do have something wrong with the notion that compatibility is the cornerstone of marriage. I think this notion perpetuates the myth that there is a perfect match waiting out there for each one of us, and we just need help to find that perfect match. <laughs> and if we do find them, then we will be perfectly compatible and live happily ever after. Life's just not like that, except maybe in the movies. Compatibility is not what makes a marriage last. Commitment is. Remember the words of Zelmira and Herbert? They said, there's no secret to our marriage. We just did what was needed for each other. We stayed committed to each other. <laughs> Commitment doesn't require anything of my spouse. Doesn't require that my relationship be perfect. It requires something of me. Commitment requires me to renew that promise each day to try to put my spouse first and to love with a deep love that covers over. So, the third thing. The third thing that I believe helps make a marriage good enough is the determination to be a peacemaker with each other. Now, why do I say that? I'm not saying that marriage is a war zone where you need peace treaties. However, Marriage, I believe, is a uniquely complex relationship that I am going to say has seven relationships within the relationship of marriage. And these relationships don't necessarily fit well together, at least according to conventional wisdom. So let me explain what I mean. We've got Herbert and Zellmeyer up here, and we've got the seven relationships, and I'm going to talk about each one just real briefly. Herbert and Zellmeyer, Herbert and Zellmeyer told us that they were friends that we should be friends in marriage. What that means is that we should share our hopes and dreams with each other. We should enter into the interests of each other. We should walk alongside each other as companions in life, and hopefully, for some of us, even be BFFs with each other, right? 
But we're also roommates. We have to live together. And not just in the same house, we often live in the same bedroom, most of us. And not just that, many of us are in the same bed with each other, trying to figure out how we navigate covers and... And we share a bathroom together. And oh my goodness, some of us share a closet with each other. Being roommates with anybody is not easy. It wasn't easy with my brothers when I was a kid. Today, conventional wisdom, and probably some of you have said these very words, will say to young people who choose to go off to college, don't be roommates with your best friend. Now, why do we say that? Because we're worried that it will ruin the friendship, right? But married couples have to do for the rest of their life what we advise young freshmen not to do for four years. (laughs) Well, in addition to the challenge of being friends and roommates, married couples are also supposed to be lovers. We're supposed to keep alive the passion and romance that characterized our courtship and do that while figuring out how to get them to, we have to do that while trying to figure out how to get him to put the toilet seat down (laughs) or how to get her to keep all of her product on her side of the sink and on and on, all the many different things that end up forming irritations and squabbles that are a part of just normal roommate life. And we all know what that's like. And somewhere in the midst of that, we're supposed to keep that flame alive and foster that deep romantic affection for each other. When you add on top of that, we're also supposed to be business partners. Now you may not necessarily own a family business, but every single married couple has to figure out how to manage their finances. And managing finances may involve budgeting and figuring out what are we gonna spend on and what are we not gonna spend on and how are we gonna save and what are we gonna do through times when money feels really tight. And the pressures and the stresses can be enormous. And we have to function as business partners in that part of our life. And in addition to all of these, we're also siblings. We're siblings in the sense that when we blend these two family systems together, now I step over into my wife's family system on the level of her and her brother. And now I've got not only my mom and dad, I've got a mother-in-law and a father-in-law. And in that family system, I'm one of the kids, right? And I have to learn to navigate sibling relationships within that family system. And she has to navigate sibling relationships within my family system. And we've got to figure out how to be husband and wife and siblings in a way at the same time. Some of us add on to all of that children. And that adds a whole new dimension when we bring children into it, because no longer is it just, what do I think a good husband or a good wife is, or what does my wife think a good husband or wife is? It's what do we think is a good father, a good mother, and how are we gonna handle discipline and education? And so many of the things that we thought we had worked through from our separate families through the early part of our marriage all get stored up, stirred up again as we try to navigate parenthood. Now, I hope I'm not depressing any of you who are thinking about getting married. (laughs) I told you I was going to talk about how hard it is. When I meet with young couples for premarital counseling, I will go through these seven relationships with them. 
And I will look them right in the eyes and I will say, you need to understand that to ever expect from this day forward that at any point over the rest of your lives, you will be doing great at all seven of these is not realistic. Most likely, you will always be struggling with at least one, if not several. So what do we do? We have to find ways to lean on those areas of our relationship that are stronger to carry us through the places where we have challenge. So for instance, maybe we are really struggling financially and we've got tremendous burden on us, but our friendship is really strong and we are able to step away together and enjoy each other deeply as friends. Or maybe we just can't seem to connect sexually and that that intimate part of our life is just not going very well. But as parents, we stand united and we're doing great in our role as parents. And we have to find ways to navigate through life, drawing on and learning from the areas of life that we do well. Now I mentioned that there were seven and we've talked about six. I've saved the seventh one because I think it's the one that's most central to the idea of peacemaking. And I'm calling it soulmates, and not soulmates in the sort of romantic sense of that perfect person, but soulmate in the sense of what it means to be brother and sister in Christ, that we stand together before God as children born of God, who together are going to pray for each other, encourage each other, and do the work that God has called us to of peacemaking. We will all be facing challenges and trying to figure out how to work this through. Paul wrote at the end of his second letter to the church in Corinth, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. To be soulmates with each other, to do the work of peacemaking, this is at the heart, I think, of what it means to be a good enough marriage. That we seek to pray for each other and equip each other to serve God and to serve him well, and to long for each other to be the person that God is creating us to be. So, marriage is never perfect. It's never perfect. We never do all of these things well. The best we can hope for is a good enough marriage in which each person does three things. To love with a deep love that covers over the imperfections of the other. To commit to promise anew each day that we will put the other first. And to seek to live in peace with each other, helping each other as we strive to become more like Christ each day. I think this is where the implication comes in for all of us. Because in reality, those are the teachings of Scripture, not just for marriage. They're for all of us. We are all supposed to love one another with that kind of love. We are all supposed to put each other before ourselves. And we are all supposed to seek to live in peace with each other. So my encouragement to each one of us, whether we're married or not, is that we consider the relationships of our lives and look through them through the lens of these three. To love, to commit, to live in peace. May God grant us the grace to do this. Let's pray.
Gracious Father, we are amazed at your love for us, that you attend to us, that in your mercy you have seen fit to come and be among us and to know what the struggles of our life are like. So we ask for your grace to empower us. We ask for open hearts to receive each other. We ask for courage, Father, that we might live boldly and try to put each other before ourselves. I pray for each of our couples who are married. I pray that you would help them, that you would surround them with people to help them. And I pray for all who are not married, that they may find intimacy and connectedness in this body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know where you are in your stage of life, whether whether you come from a broken marital system like I grew up in, whether you are struggling in a current marriage or maybe blissfully happy in a present marriage. Maybe you're on that early stage of trying to figure out what that might even look like for you. Wherever you sit this morning, that message of love, commitment, and sacrifice peacemaking applies every day in every relationship you come in contact with. Will you thank Barrett for me, wherever he is? So I'm going to pray and we'll be done. Father, we come before you this morning. We're grateful for your, your love for us. We're grateful for the opportunity to be present with you today that you are our one thing. And Father, I pray for each life that's here this morning, whatever stage of life that they're in, whatever trauma they've experienced, whatever joy they've experienced, we would remember that with you, it is all possible. It is by your grace, it is by your love, it is by your mercy that we navigate the messiness of life. Give us the courage and the strength to love, to love unconditionally and sacrificially and to strive to make peace. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.